Well, welcome, y'all, uh, to RUF tonight. Uh, if I haven't met you or if you maybe your first time, my name's Elliot Everett. I'm the campus minister for RUF here at Mercer University. We're uh, glad to have you. We uh, Our habit um, every Wednesday night, this is our large group, is to open the Word uh, and to hear from God Himself as we believe He speaks to us through uh, his written word, and we're, we've been in the Gospel of John this semester, and we are continuing there. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John 13, um, or you can read along there in your handout. Just to give you a little context, uh, last week we were in John 11, and uh, Jesus went to Bethany uh, after hearing news that his good friend Lazarus was sick, and then knowing that his good friend Lazarus had died. Um, and he went to Bethany and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in the midst of all that, uh, he told Lazarus' sister, Martha, that he was the resurrection and the life. Um, now we have moved into John 13. Jesus is in now in the upper room, just to give you an idea where we are. John chapter 12, we have the triumphal entry. So we've entered the last week of Jesus' life. There's 21 total chapters, I think, in the Gospel of John. Uh, and so John 12 begins the last week of Jesus' life. So nearly half of John's Gospel is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves tonight. In John 13, the end of John 13 and then John 14 through 17 is what is known as the farewell discourse. John records for us um, this discourse of Jesus that he spoke to his disciples in the upper room before they went out into Gethsemane. Uh, so we're in the upper room the night of Jesus' betrayal, um, the day before he dies. And that's where we're going to be the next two weeks. We've got two more weeks that I'll be preaching, and then the last week of April we'll have... Uh, special RUF for seniors. So we've got two more I am statements, but tonight we're taking a break from the I am statements, and I want to look at something Jesus says here. We're going to look at this passage in uh, chapter 13, we're going to jump to chapter 16 as well. If you would, read along with me here, uh, John 13, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus, when Judas, that's Judas, has gone to betray Jesus. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you jump to chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Father... Uh, we do come now and we would ask that you would give us your spirit. 
Father, that you would point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know you, uh, perhaps as we've never known you before. Above all, Father, we pray that we would hear you speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What we're going to get into tonight, um, the meat of it comes from the last chapter in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, um, a chapter that I read and it just kind of blew me away. And I want to take what Keller talks about in that chapter and situate it in the context of the Gospel of John and specifically uh, in the context of what we've been talking about, um, who is I am. That's what we've been, we've been exploring that question this semester, who is I am? Jesus said I am on countless occasions as recorded by John, uh, and that's what we've been looking at this semester. What I want to look at tonight is what is one of the most unique aspects of Christianity among the world religions, and it is that our God, our one God, the only God of all the universe, is triune. What do I mean by that? That it's the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists eternally as three persons. Okay? Um, Trinity does not mean threeness, it actually means three in one. It's tri unity. Okay? Uh, you might be interested to know, I don't know if, if how many of you know this, but the word Trinity is actually not in our Bibles. Uh, it was a word coin, coined by. Uh, uh, Tertullian, a church father. And my intent tonight is not to look at the biblical evidence of Trinity, but rather I, what I want to look at is what Jesus says here is the implications for us, his people. Okay, the fact that Jesus is the God that has existed from eternity as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'm not gonna look at the biblical evidence, but I want to consider the implications but suffice it to say that God's triune presence is throughout Scripture and has been at work in all of creation since the beginning. Especially the Bible and the New Testament presents us to us uh, as the Trinity's work uh, in the history of redemption. So, and I've told you the context of this farewell discourse, this kind of last um, teaching that, John, that Jesus is giving his disciples because he knows that their world is about to be rocked. Okay, that he's about to be killed and they're not going to understand it. And they weren't even looking for the resurrection. They were scared. They were holed up in a room. Um, so he's trying to comfort them. And a, th- a theme throughout this discourse is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the, ap- the implications there are uh, vast for us. And that's what I want to look at tonight. So if you see, I have five points there. And that looks daunting, but I promise they're, they're not huge points. Uh, but they all flow together easily. Um, the first one kind of laying this out there, is the divine dance, okay? What does it mean that Jesus is God and that God has existed in eternity as three persons in one? Well, you read in chapter 13 there, we read, there's, there's a hint of it. Jesus kind of given a hint of what that was like to exist like that in eternity. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once, Okay, uh, chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus kind of talks about the Holy the Spirit, the Father and the Son kind of working together, and he says in verse 14 there that the Spirit will glorify him. Uh, in chapter 17, Jesus says that he glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies him, and that that has been going on for eternity. 
Okay, so the first thing that we got to deal with here is this question, what does it mean? What is Jesus talking about when he talks about this mutual glorification that's going on, uh, that they glorify each other? Why is it so foundational to three persons of the Godhead? Well, put simply, think about to glorify something is to make its glory known. To glorify something is to reveal its glory by your actions. It's to concentrate on its attributes. It's to point to its glory, right? Uh, It's to acknowledge its glory in some way. So if you glorify something, you praise it, you enjoy it, you delight in it in some way, okay? So the concentration of the act of glorifying, the concentration, the focus there is solely on the other, When you glorify something, you are solely focused on that thing, okay? So you could say that to glorify someone would be to serve or to defer to them, okay? You're making them central. You sacrificed your interest to make that person happy. Why? Because when you glorify someone, your ultimate joy is to see their joy, right? Okay, so what does that mean for the the Father, uh, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to glorify one another? Well, I think it's helpful to to think of the opposite first. Think about self-centeredness, okay? If you think about self-centeredness, you you think about being like the sun, okay? If you think of this picture, if you're self-centered, you're like the sun. Everything in your world is revolving around you when you're self-centered, okay? You're static, you're stationary, okay? And if you're static or self-centered, you are giving, you, the, only, the only times that you give of yourself is when it meets your needs or your wants or your goals or your fulfillments because everything is orbiting around you. But what we see here, I think what Jesus is alluding to here is that the life of the Trinity, the Godhead, is completely different, Okay? It's not defined by self-centeredness, but it's actually defined by what Keller calls a mutually self-giving love. If you think of it kind of as a picture in your head, instead of a sun, you think about these three, uh, you can't picture God, but there's kind of this mutual orbiting that's happening, this mutu- all three of them orbiting, deferring to the other two. So each divine person centers on the other two, defers to the other two, gives glory to the other two. Okay, there's no self-centeredness about it. And I'm trying to make it sound simple, but please do not hear me trying that you should be able to wrap your mind around this. This is nothing short of profound mystery. Okay, but C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, as only he can in mere Christianity, he describes it like this. You gotta hear, and this is kind of where Keller and me got the title um, of this dance. In Lewis says this, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama almost, and if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. I think that's a beautiful picture that Lewis kind of draws there for us. In a dance or a drama, um, you do have individual players in the way that we think about individual individuality, but at the same time, there's this there's a unity. You, has anybody ever been in a play? There's, I mean, I did I did athletics and play, and I I really feel like there's a stronger bond in the cast of a play than there is on a sports team. Okay, um, 
You know, there's, there's, everybody's got their distinct role, but at the end of it, when you all bow all together, that's like the crowning achievement of putting on a play, in my mind at least. Uh, and I think uh, John captures this in John 15, uh, or Jesus captures this. John records Jesus saying in John 15, 26 and 27, listen to this. When the helper comes, who I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see how that works? He comes from the Father, I will send him. He proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. There's, just, just, there's, 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 there's distinctives there, but at the same time, there's a, there's a unity of mission and goal. Uh, C.S. Lewis goes on to say this. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Let me read that again. I know that's like lofty. It's list. The pattern of this three-personal life, the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. What does that mean? This is where it gets practical, if, if the Trinity can get practical. Anyway, um, think about the fundamental def- definitions of life. Relationship. God, as he has existed in eternity, defines Relationship. He's always had it, and he's always had it in perfection. Okay? Love. Is God love? I would venture to so much to say that only the God of the Bible can be love. People like to say God is love. Only the God of the Bible could be love. Because only he has known it for eternity. There was never a time when love began for him. For love to exist, there has to be other, right? He has had other for eternity. God is Love. The very essence of God as he exists is love. Uh, Keller says it like this. The ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. Love and community are at the core of created reality because the one who created it is such. He's been that way for eternity. And like I said, I'm not saying this is supposed to be easy to understand. This is supposed to blow our circuits, okay? This is something that we dwell on for, something the church fathers dwelt on year after year, century after century, because it, it is profound. Paul in Romans 11, as he considers God and how he's acted in history, he bursts out in a song and he just says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. It's all he can say at the end of it in Romans 11. He cannot, God, I'm not saying we could put God in a box, but I do think Jesus is inviting us into something that has profound implications for us. It's meant to teach us something. Um, so move on from there. God as he is. Move on now to the beginning of history, okay? The dance, this is the second thing. The dance of creation. There's a very uh, popular catechism question when I was growing up that is the first one in the catechism that I learned. What is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, that's not a Bible verse, but it's what we believe every single page of Scripture is screaming at us. That our purpose is to glorify God, to praise him, to serve him. But here's the question. If God existed from eternity as a community of persons glorifying each other, why did he need someone else to have a chief end to glorify him? Why did he need that? Why does he call us? Why does he put us at the center? Why does he put himself at the center of our lives? The reality is, God as he exists, he did not need to create anything. Okay? As he existed from eternity, there was no need, there was no defect, there was no incompletion that any creation would have met in him. 
He's perfect. Okay? So why does he create and call us to glorify him if he is by nature not self-centered? So think about how he's existed from eternity. Triunally, in perfect community, peace, harmony, and happiness. Okay? He knows perfect community, perfect relationship. So by definition, the source of infinite happiness and joy is not through self-centeredness, but through other-centered love. Because that's how he exists. So what does that tell us about creation? Donald McLeod puts it like this. Creation itself was an act of sheer grace. Get this, in which God chose to extend the circle of being, fellowship, and love beyond himself. See what that's telling us? God did not create to get joy. God created to share it. Before man is created, the apex of creation, what does God say? Let us make man in our image. We're not made in the image of angels. He was speaking of himself. God calls us to live for him because he wants us to experience the joy that he's known for eternity. In other words, he created us to dance. Okay, using the metaphor. So if you find yourself tonight fearing loneliness, craving relationship, hungering for community, that does not necessarily mean that you're an overly dependent person. That means that you're longing for what you were created for. Okay? But the third point here is losing the dance because as quickly as we begin reading in the Bible, as quickly as we read of the joy of creation, the ultimate joy woven into the very fabric of our existence, we get to Genesis 3 and we lost the dance. What happened? We were created in his image, created to center our lives on him, created to know mutually self-giving love, okay? And what did we do? We stood still, okay? We looked at the world and God and we decided that it should all be revolving around us. That was the lie that Adam and Eve believed. Stop living for God and his glory and they began to seek their own glory. So what happened to us is we became self-centered, okay? If you think about the times of your deepest miseries, okay, maybe in college, in life, whatever, I would, I'm willing to bet at the core of those deepest miseries, you will find some sort of self-absorption. The source of our deepest miseries in life are when we stand still, when we think everything is orbiting around us, an obsession with our wants, needs, and desires. But we're built for relationship with God and with each other. And as soon as Adam and Eve fall in the garden, both of them fall apart. Not just does their relationship with God become unglued, but their relationship to each other becomes unglued. And we see the ramifications flow through history after that. So not only are we alienated from God, but at our very core, we are now alienated from one another. Because we stood still. We were static. Okay, and it's not hard to see that the harmony of mankind is broken. Uh, it's what Paul calls the dividing walls of hostility, right? Barriers are higher than ever today. You walk into any room or group of people, there are going to be walls, all sorts of walls in that room, in that group, right? Um, think about marriage. Marriage is supposed to be this beautiful picture of the gospel for us. But some of our deepest hurts 
and memories and scars have come from seeing marriages fall apart and be broken and be messy. Parenting. Some of us carry some of the deepest scars for the rest of our lives from our relationships with our parents and vice versa. Parents with their children. The church is a messy place full of broken people, right? And because of the mess most of us have seen or experienced in relationships, most of us have just thrown up our hands and said, what is the use anyway? And what we've done is we've become so crafty with the facades that we put up that there's no one that actually knows what we're really like. And what social media is telling us about our generation Um, I like to think about social media as we go miles wide with ourselves, but maybe inches deep. And what social media is showing about our generation is that we are terrified to give ourselves to other people. We have this nice little platform that makes it look like we're giving ourselves to everybody, right? Why? Because we stopped dancing. We became static. We demanded that everything in our world revolve around us. It's usually the downfall of all of our relationships, right? But God doesn't leave us there. This is the fourth one. The return to the dance. You see, the story goes on. Have you ever considered, have you ever really considered, stopped and asked, why did Jesus come to die? Why did he come to die? What did he get out of it? You remember in John 1, we read that God, Jesus, the word who was in the beginning with God, had been in the bosom of his father from all eternity, John put it. In John chapter 1, okay? What happened? What happened, what we're told is that in time, God who is outside of time, in time, came, left his throne in heaven, came down to this earth, took on human likeness so that he could deal with our sin and alienation, okay? He came down so that we might know the glory that we were created for. He prays in John 17, to God. He says, the glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given to them. That's the main reason that he came, to give us the glory back. Sacrificed himself that we might be lifted up. So what he did is he came and he circled around us. He deferred to us. He served us. In other words, what did he do? He danced with us to bring us back So he could fulfill something in himself? No, so that we might know ultimate joy in him, the joy that we were created for. That we might once again center our lives around him even as he did for us. Look at verse 34 in chapter 13. The implication he gives then is this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. There are profound, so what Jesus is saying is that his relationship with the Father has profound implications for how we are to live. Earlier in chapter 13, John tells us that, G- that Jesus had given his disciples a very tangible picture of this. He took off his robe, he got on his knees with a bowl of water and washed his disciples' feet. Okay? So this deeply intimate, significant act to share with his disciples the love and glory that he'd known with his father. And now he shares it with us. And the implication is now that we are invited to share it with the world. Did you catch this in verse 35? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
So in other words, you and I, the people of God, the way that we live our lives before the world will be what Bruce Milne calls a visible authentication of the gospel. Just as the Trinity is not some abstract idea, so our return to the dance, our restoration into the image in which we were created, it's not some lofty ideal, it's not some place of nirvana, it's concrete way of life for the body of Christ. Early church history tells us that Tertullian recorded how the pagans in his day viewed the church. What they often said was, behold how they love one another. Lucian of Samosata was an early historian and critic, not, not a Christian. He said this of the church. Their founder, Jesus Christ, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and they view all of their possessions as common property. So what, what set the early church apart was not an argument or a treatise. It was their mutual love of one another that they learned from their Savior. And that was the magnet that drew the multitudes of people to come and know this God. The way that they lived. The way that they interacted with one another. The way that they loved. Okay? How would that look for us? How would that look for you? here, at Mercer, in RUF, wherever. You know, you think about this, and at least one thing maybe to think about is maybe there are some times when there are things more important than studying. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) Or your resume, or your work, or whatever. Sometimes there are things more important than that, things that you were created for each other. And you're God, right? Where is it all going, though? It's the last one, the future of the dance. Where is it all leading? Remember last week, pointed out that what the Bible tells us about resurrection is that it is for all things. It's for all things. It's not that all this stuff is gonna melt away and we're gonna drift up into some spiritual nirvana, right? Jesus came to set the whole world to rights, right? You think about back in the creation, when God created the world, we could say that he rejoiced it into being uh, so that all creation might step into his joy. I think the psalmist hints at this in Psalm 65. The pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. Even though creation is broken and dying, it still sings to us the glory of God. And Paul talks about in Romans 8, he says this, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself will be liberated from bondage and it will also enjoy with us the glorious freedom of the children of God. So together, get this, together, at the end of all things, man and creation will sing to the king of kings as he returns in glory to restore all things. There will be what the angels promised to the shepherds. There will be glory to God in the highest and peace among earth, peace among men, peace on earth among men. In other words, what? We'll dance into eternity. What are the implications for us? What is Jesus 
as he begins this farewell discourse, as he comes to say he's the way, the truth, and the life, as he comes to say that he's the true vine, as he prays over his disciples before he meets his betrayer, what are the implications for us? Well, from the perspective of who this God is, of who this Jesus is, we're to worship him because of who he is, because he's worthy, because he made us for him. For himself, he made us to center our existence on him that we might know what he has enjoyed for eternity. He made us to glorify himself. We're to love one another as we are bound together in him, as we are built up in the body of Christ. We're to glorify one another. We are to exercise this mutually self-giving love that he showed us with each other. And as we do that, we show it to the world. And the final implication, I think, is this, that we care for his world. We care for it. This world in which he's making all things new. We seek healing for the broken. We seek justice for the marginalized. We seek renewal for the downtrodden because such were some of us, as Paul would say in Corinthians. We do, in other words, we do what Jesus did. We take up his rescue operation. We dance, and in the process, we invite the whole world in. That's the posture that we take John, towards the end of his life, says in 1 John chapter 4, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Sounds oddly like what Jesus is saying. Us in him, him in us, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. We glorify him, he glorifies us. He raises us to heavenly places with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We dance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your words. We marvel at who you are. We marvel that you would leave your throne above, your place at your Father's side, that we might be once again what you created us to be, that we might know joy, the joy that we have forsaken, the joy that we run away from, the joy that we have looked to anything and everything else to find. You came and you served us, that you might give us the freedom and the power to not be self-centered, that we might center our lives once again upon you and that in the process we might love one another. We pray that we would be marked by this love, that the world would see it, and in the process that we would all know you better. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.